In this present lecture, we would like to deal with the further development of the eschatology of victory in New Testament times. We have sought to ground our foundation rather severely in the Old Testament, where I believe we must start hermeneutically, and then we also went on to explore the development of the idea of the eschatology of victory between the Old Testament and the New, between the time of Malachi and the time of Matthew. And indeed, that is of importance for the New Testament, for it is significant that the apocryphal and pseudepigraphical writings uh, ceased altogether, almost at the exact time that the canon of the New Testament was being laid down. And when we look at the New Testament, we find a massive reliance upon the Old Testament canon, but I believe we also find in the New Testament traces to some matters mentioned in the Apocrypha itself. Of course, this should create no problem to us. Uh, there's no reason at all, it seems to me, why God the Holy Spirit uh, might not, in the inscripturation of the New Testament, uh, be pleased to take even apocryphal elements, which were not themselves inspired, uh, to lift them out of the context of the apocrypha, and then to rearrange them, infallibly inspiring them at the same time in a New Testament context. As a matter of fact, uh, I believe the New Testament teaches that this was done uh, even in respect of pagan writings, not of Jewish origin at all. For example, where we find the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, uh, inscripturating, infallibly inscripturating, or rather the Holy Spirit through Paul, infallibly inscripturating in one verse of the Bible, a citation from a pagan Cretan poet, Epimenides, and so too in other parts of Scripture. If we bear in mind that God is the author of all truth, and that the Holy Spirit superintends the focus of truth into the one and only infallible document, namely the Word of God and its 66 books, I believe that that particular problem dissolves. This is why then I believe it's so important for us to have an understanding, especially of the Old Testament, but also of the Apocrypha and, and even the Pseudepigrapha as we approach the New Testament. If, for example, we have read in depth in Matthew 24, um, we immediately recognize or should re recognize the dependence of much of that material infallibly uttered through the mouth of our Lord Jesus himself on the book of Daniel. And so, too, those of us who have studied 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 in detail, dealing with the emergence of the man of sin, uh, have perhaps recognized and should recognize the dependence of that material via Paul's thought process from Daniel chapter 11. And then in the book of Revelation, uh, any study of the book of Revelation would or should speedily reveal the dependence of the Apostle John in writing Revelation under the infallible guidance of the Holy Spirit, of course, 
on considerable portions of Isaiah, Zechariah, and even the book of Deuteronomy. And I think as we approach the Gospels at the beginning of the New Testament, uh, we see the principle of hermeneutic continuity between the two Testaments uh, rather clearly outlined. For example, who has not noticed the similarity between the first verses of John's Gospel and the first verses of Genesis? In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, all things were made by Him. In the beginning, God, the triune God, created the heavens and the earth, and God spoke His Word and said, Let there be light, and there was light. When we look at the Gospel of Luke, we find a similar dependence on uh, the ancestor of the Lucan document, in the very last verses of the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, Luke starts off with a bang by reminding us, in as many words, that John the Baptist is in fact the one who will go forth to prepare the way before the day spring arises from high. And that, of course, is a clear reference to the prophecy of... Um, the messenger who would come in the power of Elijah to prepare the way for the coming of the Son of Righteousness who would arise with healing in his wings on the last page of the Old Testament. And then perhaps even more fascinatingly, when we come to the book of Mark, uh, we find it beginning with an account of our Savior's baptism. And right after that, we are told very significantly that the wild animals came to him and that the angels served him. The implication of that, I believe, is that the second Adam, Jesus Christ, has just been re-anointed in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as prophet, priest, and king to undertake his subjugation of the earth and the sea and the sky the wild animals and the angels to the glory of God in continuing and fulfilling the covenant of works which God erected with the first Adam, the provisions of which still continue, but this time under a new federal head. And then when we look at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, we see a deliberate attempt made not only to go all the way back to Abraham, uh, via uh, King David, reminding us that Abraham is the father of all believers, uh, but we also see a deliberate attempt in the opening verses of Matthew to construct the genealogical human ancestry of the Lord Jesus Christ on uh, a sevenfold base. All the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, 7 plus 7, and so forth. And we have three series of that, paralleling, of course, the uh, two pairs of the days of creation in Genesis 1. And there it's as if the idea that after 6 times 7 generations, God reveals his Son as a Son of Righteousness shining sevenfold times, in terms of Isaiah's prophecy, so that the implication is, with the coming into the world of the Lord Jesus Christ, God's jubilee year 
uh, of Leviticus 25 is beautifully expressed and proclaimed. And indeed, when we look at the preaching of our Savior, I think it's significant that Luke tells us that his first sermon uh, that he preached was from the book of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord hath anointed me, and he hath appointed me as a prophet to proclaim, as a priest to show mercy to people, and as a king to set uh, at liberty those who are captive to proclaim the acceptable year, the jubilee year of the Lord, proclaim liberty throughout the land and to all of the inhabitants thereof. Well, now, that by way of introduction, because I think it is very important for us to understand the integral nature of the entire Bible, and for us to see that the New Testament is not teaching us a different system of doctrine than did the Old, uh, but it is rather a continuation of the Old, a fructification of the Old, and not involving its cancellation in any way whatsoever. Let us now look in a little more detail uh, at the statement that we find in Luke chapter 1, beginning verse 76. For the angel said to the father of John the Baptist, Zechariah, Do not fear, your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And many of the children of Israel shall he turn to the Lord their God, and he shall go out ahead of him, showing that the one coming after John was the Lord God, the two natures of Christ. He shall go out ahead of him in the spirit and power of Elijah, harking back to Matthew, uh, Malachi chapter 4, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. John here is a second Elijah, reconstructing the dilapidated covenant of God's people in much the same way as Elijah did on Mount Carmel when he rebuilt the altar, and turning the children of the covenant people who had strayed away back to the faith of their fathers and the other way round. Turning the disobedient, we are told, to the wisdom of the just. Those who disobey the law of God are turned to the just one, Jesus Christ, the great lawgiver and law keeper, to the one who is the wisdom of God, the fulfillment of the wisdom in the book of Proverbs and elsewhere, to prepare or make ready a people for the Lord. And then directing the attention specifically to uh, a little John who was to become the Baptist thou child shalt be called the prophet of the highest for thou shalt go before the face of the Lord to prepare his ways to give knowledge of salvation unto his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercy of our God whereby the day spring the dawning the sunlight from on high hath visited us to give light to them that sit in darkness. The son of righteousness of Malachi to arise with healing in his wings uh, to fulfill, of course, the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 9, those that 
dwelt in darkness have seen a great light up in the Galilee of the nations of the Gentiles and those who live in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. That's Luke chapter 1, verses 17, uh, 13 through 17, and again 76 through 79. I think it's also very significant to note what John the Baptist tells us in chapter 3 of Luke, where we read that the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And he came into all the country about Jordan, preaching, Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill shall be brought low. The alternative implication is that Mount Zion shall become high, lifted up, and exalted as a result of this preaching and the one about whom the preaching was made. The crooked shall be made straight. The rough ways shall be made smooth. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God clear echoes, I believe, not only of Isaiah 2, but also of Isaiah 40. And then we need to pay much attention to one of the greatest texts in the whole Bible, one which all evangelical Christians will recognize as being central. That is, of course, John chapter 3, and verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. It strikes me that this perhaps most beloved of all Bible texts and rightly so is often so misunderstood as to its true teaching. For it does not suggest or imply that God so hated the world, being incurable in its sin, that he foreordained to destroy it and to throw it into hell as God's trash heap and merely to save and to rapture a handful of chosen frozens out of the world and that that's is merely the sum intent of God's purpose. No, no. It seems to me this text says that God so loved the world, the cosmos, the totality of what he had created, uh, the world of man to be sure, centrally so, but also the world that man himself makes under God, the world of man's arts and his science and his literature. God loves this so much that rather than see it disappear or destroy it, he sends his only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to shed his most precious blood for the restoration and the consummation of this world and centrally, so that whosoever believeth in him should not perish. That whosoever, as Warfield so beautifully points out, shows something of the universality of the gospel offer and indeed of God's saving intention uh, having created the world not to destroy it but to be inhabited to fill it with culture and treasure and people so that whosoever believeth in the Son should not perish but should have everlasting life not a life which begins merely 
when we die, but as Jesus said, a life that begins the moment we believe in him, in this life here and now, and a life which is not confined to church life, but a life that covers every area of human activity, family, art, science, politics, and so forth. This is the everlasting life in Christ Jesus that God gives us. And then the following verse, verse 17, so important because God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, the beautifully adorned created cosmos, but God did send his Son into the world so that the world through him might be saved might be healed, might be sanctified, might be brought to God's cosmic shalom. I believe it's also of importance that we see what the Lord Jesus Christ himself reveals in Luke chapter 11, where the Lord Jesus plainly tells the Pharisees that if Satan uh, is divided against himself, his kingdom will not stand. And then the Lord repels the allegation that uh, it is through Satan's power that he, the Lord Jesus Christ, is advancing God's kingdom in healing the sick and driving out demons and so forth. If it is with the finger of God, says Jesus, that I am casting out demons, there is no doubt that the kingdom of God has come upon you. From this we can see that the Lord Jesus very clearly believed that the kingdom of God is a present reality in this world, inserted into this world here and now, and not something just for the future. And in that regard, let me insert at this point what our Savior says here to Pilate, where he says, I am indeed a king, and my kingdom is not of this world, is not from this world, uh, that's not where it started, uh, but the implication is that his kingdom had now become inserted into this world at that point in time, had been brought down from heaven, planted in this world like a seed, was growing, and as Daniel predicted, was predicted to transform the face of the world and to reclaim it for the recognition of Christ's everlasting kingship over it. And then he adds, going back to his discussion with the Pharisees, when a strong man who is armed keeps and guards his own palace, well, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger man than he comes upon him and overcomes him, that stronger man takes from him all of his armor in which he trusted and he divides his spoils. Of course, the meaning there is that Satan is in his home and that he controls certain goods and chattels. But then along comes Jesus Christ at that point in time, let me add. And he overpowers Satan and he dispossesses Satan of his chattels. And then he distributes his spoils. I think we need to see this is not a question of the Son of God stealing things that belong to Satan or people that belong to Satan. This is a question of the Son of God coming to repossess his own chapels 
which not Satan, but which he created, but which Satan has illegally expropriated from the forces of the sons of God, in much the same way as the Egyptians uh, illegally took possession of what rightfully belonged to the Israelites, and at the time of the Exodus, the Israelites legally and rightfully took repossession of their own goods, or better, of God's goods with which he had entrusted them of the stewardship and removed them legally and constitutionally from the control of the children of Satan. And then our Savior says that he, having dispossessed Satan of his goods, having taken his own goods, things, people, their art, science, culture, whatever, back into his repossession, he, the Son of God, then proceeds to divide his spoils. This reminds me, and I believe our Savior, when he said that, was certainly thinking of that great messianic chapter of Isaiah 53. You remember how it says that after the death of the coming slave of Jehovah, uh, and after his resurrection, he will divide his spoils with the mighty. Uh, in other words, it's on the basis of the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ that he repossesses those that belong to him and what he gave them custody and stewardship over, and then he redivides these spoils. He gives to us, to the mighty ones, those whom he makes mighty, goods and stewardship over things which we in our turn are to employ for the further extension of the recognition of his control over the world. And then of course there are the kingdom parables. Time and again our Savior tells us kingdom of God uh, is like, amongst other things, mustard seed. Starts off in such a small and an insignificant looking way despise not the day of small beginnings but after that mustard seed has been inserted into the ground as our Savior now brought his kingdom not from the earth but from heaven down into the earth and inserted it into the ground the kingdom begins to grow like mustard seed until finally it becomes a huge uh, tree that fills the earth and attracts all the birds of the air to come and nest under it. Is our Savior's reminding of his audience of the teaching of Ezekiel 16, uh, the cedar tree that uh, we looked at briefly last night. And then what, of course, of that great stock in trade of the pessimist, namely the parable of the wheat and the tares. And we are constantly being told, but you must see there will be tares there till the very end. Well, of course, this we concede. But I think the whole point of the parable of the wheats and the tares is this, not that there will be some tares in the world at the time of the harvest, but that it is a wheat field in which the tares are growing, and not a tares field in which uh, a few specimens of wheat are growing. The character of this theater in which God is working out the advance of his kingdom is that of a wheat field and not of a trash heap or a field full of weeds. I also see in John chapter 12 our Savior reminding us that the judgment of this world occurred now at that point in time 
as he went to the cross where the great forensic struggle was being decided in terms of God's most holy law. Now shall the prince of this world, Satan, be cast out, and I, I, if I be lifted up from the earth, on the cross of Calvary, but I think too particularly in his ascension into heaven and his session at the right hand of God the Father in fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel 7, then I will draw all men unto me. These are very strong and powerful statements, the full impact of which become crystal clear to us when we have first been steeped with the hefty doses of Old Testament and to a lesser extent of the Apocrypha and the Pseudepigrapha that we really need to have to understand the true weight of these words of the Lord Jesus. And then coming to some of the other parables in Matthew, uh, you recall how in Matthew 21:33 we are told of how the owner goes off into a far country. In Matthew 25, uh, 14 and 17, the parable of the talents, we're told that the owner goes away for a long time. Uh, this is no short trip to heaven to be followed by a speedy return to the earth uh, to put an end to the development of God's kingdom towards its consummation. But during that long time, uh, when the owner of the talents uh, is away in his far country in heaven, uh, investment of the talents of his servants is to be made at long-range terms of interest during that long time. So that when he comes back, indeed after many centuries, why the little which he gave them has been multiplied by their wise investments of their time, of their money, of their talents and whatever else into the multiplication of uh, these kingdom chattels and assets which they are then at the end of time to present to King Jesus as the fruit of their reasonable religion. Do you see how beautifully that parable blends uh, with the teaching of Genesis chapter 17 that kings and nations shall come forth out of Abraham with the fulfillment of that in uh, Revelation 21 where we are told that finally the kings of the earth shall bring the honor and the glory, uh, the art and the science and the literature and the wealth of the nations into the new Jerusalem, indeed into the church militant here and now and in the future, but also into the church triumphant, uh, which is not a different kind of a church, but the church triumphant is merely the eschatological consummation and not the destruction, but the further enhancement of the church militant of which we are now part, or better, the body of Christ in all of its cosmos embracing scope and control. I'm also reminded that in these parables of the owner, the controller, the farmer going off to a far country for a long time, having given his marching orders and his investment orders to his stewards on earth, 
what we really have at this point is the Lord Jesus Christ's infallible comment on the true meaning of Daniel 7. Because in Daniel 7, you recall, and we referred to this briefly previously, uh, we have the Son of Man leaving the earth on the clouds of heaven and going back to his father's house to the Ancient of Days, from which point, as the head of his body, through the agency of his members, you and I, uh, of his church here on earth, he then proceeds to extend the control of the, of the world, or better, to turn the world more and more to recognizing his everlasting and eternal control of it, until all nations and peoples and tribes and tongues end up in acknowledging him. And then in Mark chapter 10, uh, we are told uh, the fascinating story of the Lord Jesus Christ's um, conversation with a rich young ruler. You recall that he begins by telling him that if he wants to have everlasting life, he needs to keep the commandments. He then spells out which commandments he's talking about, the moral law of God, several examples of which uh, the Lord Jesus gave. And then when the rich young ruler counted the cost and had been unmasked as a thoroughly idolatrous, greedy, avaricious, and covetous young man, one who did not love God with all of his heart, mind, body, and soul, as the law requires that we should, we find him marching away and Jesus' own disciples in dismay, uh, asking, well, if a young man like that, who has obviously some outward form of religion, cannot be saved, how can any one of us be saved? And then the Lord Jesus say, well, with God all things are possible. And then the comment, I tell you, said Jesus, there's not one of you who will have left father or son or goods for my sake and the gospels who shall not receive back in this life here and now a hundredfold more brothers, sisters, goods, possessions and lands and of course in the life to come everlasting life what's Jesus saying there? Why, he is re-endorsing, is he not, Leviticus 26 and Deuteronomy 28, which says that if we, for his sake, keep the Ten Commandments, which, uh, in all of their implications, which he is what he had just told the rich young ruler, then we should expect God to prosper us in this life, here and now, in the total context of our human living, and not to expropriate and to, and to deprive us of these human chattels and merely give us a greater reward only after we die. I think the wonderful thing of true Christianity is it's not at all what Karl Marx said Christianity was, but what Karl Marx accurately said that pietistic sub-Christianity is, a promise of a pie in the sky by and by. The fact is that Jesus says true Christianity is a hundredfold better pie here on earth, here and now, than we've ever had before, and in the next life, if I may facetiously suggest, a millennial thousandfold better pie than the hundredfold pie that we should expect to have in this life here and now too.
And so I think the church desperately needs to recover an awareness of the real depth of these eschatological promises according to the intent of our Savior Jesus Christ, which can be sufficiently established by a minute and a prayerful investigation of all of the scriptures in their historical development. It is from this perspective, too, that I believe we need to approach the Great Commission. Jesus came and spoke to his disciples and he said, All power has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. I do not believe, nor did Calvin, that Jesus was there referring to his divine power. I believe with Calvin that what Jesus was meaning is this, because I, Jesus Christ, as the Son of Man, as the second Adam, have now humanly fulfilled the covenant of works, I am now entitled to receive the reward that any man will receive for doing that. And that reward is all power that a human being can wield is now to be given me by the triune God in heaven and on earth. The implication, you see, is that the first Adam and his descendants were intended, and their elect descendants are still intended, to wield power over all of heaven and the whole earth. Human power. Therefore, says Jesus, because I, as the Son of Man, have now received this human reward from the triune God for my work, go ye therefore, ye for whom I have achieved this, you must now go into all the world, and you must teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Or as the Greek would say, you are now to go and to turn all nations into my disciples. Not five people in Mexico, six in Bongo Bongo Land, and seven in Tahiti, and then we have fulfilled the Great Commission. That's not at all what the Lord is saying. He says we are to undertake the Christianization of the entire earth and all of its peoples. Why? Well, Psalm 2. Because, you see, uh, the Father said to the Son in all eternity, before the Son became man, to shed his blood for the reclamation of the universe, ask of me, and I will give you the very heathen as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth. And so now he has paid the forensic price. And he now says to his stewards, you go out in this mopping up and cleaning up operation, and you proclaim uh, the full scope of this great commission, and turn all nations into my disciples, and baptize the nations. Not baptize the adults, by the way, nor baptize just the babies, but baptize the nations as nations in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Equip them with the badge of Christianity to become prophets and priests and kings to do all things to the glory of God as Adams descended from the second Adam rooted in the first Adam in subjugating the earth. Teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you including the things that I, the second person of the Trinity, commanded the first Adam 
Back in the Garden of Eden, when I told him and all of his descendants to be fruitful and to multiply and to fill the earth and to have dominion over every last inch of this universe, all things whatsoever. This everlasting Son of God has ever revealed to man from the first page of Genesis to the last page of, generation, of, of Revelation. All of this is to be taught in his name to all of the nations after they receive their baptism to equip them to be good, successful, combat-ready soldiers in the army of the living God. And that will take many, many centuries. You say, well, don't I know it, but don't panic. Know that I am with you always, even to the very end of the ages. The Apostle James is considered by some to be the half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ. There's a debate about that, but I think it is uh, possible, if not probable, or even likely. And he, you know, was the moderator of the first General Assembly of the New Testament Christian Church in Acts chapter 15. And to me, the significant thing of that August Assembly is that it correctly pointed to the ritualistic and ceremonial nature of circumcision, but in the same breath. And it's amazing how many have not caught this. There is a reinforcement of the so-called Noachic provisions. Tell the con converts on the mission field from paganism uh, that they need not be circumcised. However, they must stop committing adultery, they must stop murdering, and they must stop committing crime, crimes of violence. It seems to me, you see, that this is a re-echo of the moral law of God which the Lord gave to Noah and to all of the nations of the earth in Noah. And this, by the way, was established by that synod and it was mandatorily handed down not just as pious advice to the congregations but indeed as a decision of the Holy Spirit and we, his ambassadors, who following that spirit have authoritatively established it and it was taken down to all of the congregations of the church of the Lord Jesus Acts 16 verses 4 and 5 to them for to keep and as the congregations kept this they were prospered and the word of God grew mightily oh how we need to recapture the integrity and the organic unity of the Church of Christ, not as a parliament of uh, solo artists who each do their own thing, but as a corporate body of Christ through whom the Holy Spirit speaks as a whole. And it's in this context, too, that we are to understand James elsewhere. James chapter 2, verses 8 through 10, where he enjoins those who have been saved by the precious blood of Jesus to keep the royal law of God. And he specifies what he means. Thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not kill. And he points out that it's useless to keep just most of these commandments, but to break the rest. We need, for Christ's sake, as his saved children, to keep all of the commandments of God so that 
uh, beholding ourselves in this wonderful mirror, we can become transformed and we can begin to practice true religion and undefiled, which is not just to slap people on the back and to say, are you saved, brother, but which is to take care of the orphans and the widows in their distress. In other words, to concretely apply the principles of the love of God and of our neighbor in concrete situations very similar to the manner in which Exodus chapter 21 and subsequent chapters concretely apply the moral law of God set out in the 20th chapter of Exodus. And so we find Peter, one of the central apostles, uh, appealing to the Jews and to the proselytes in Acts chapter 2 that they are to repent and to be baptized to receive the unction of God and the badge of Christianity every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins for the promises unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off to all who are afar off not just their descendants unto thousands of generations of those that love God and keep his commandments but indeed also to the goyim the heathen who um, Ephesians chapter 2 tells us were regarded by the Jews as having been far off this same Peter reminds his addressees in his first epistle chapter 2 that they had come and were to keep on coming to Christ as the living stone the chief cornerstone uh, the stone I believe Peter intended of Daniel chapter 2 that was to roll victoriously throughout the earth and to become a huge mountain you too says Peter as living stones as little pebbles like I Peter built upon the big rock Christ Jesus you little pebbles as living stones are now being built up on the chief foundation stone Jesus Christ into a spiritual house the church of God of all ages and people the temple of the Holy Ghost a holy priesthood why? so that you may offer up spiritual sacrifices which are acceptable to God and what are these spiritual sacrifices? just putting our hands together and mumbling pious prayers? No. The spiritual sacrifices that we are to bring to God are husbands, love your wives, wives, love your husbands, employees, work hard for your employers, and so on and so forth. And we have exactly the same emphasis in Colossians 3 from the Apostle uh, Paul where he tells us to seek the things which are above where Jesus is, not the things of earth. But what does he mean by the things that are above? Disembodied spirits, so heavenly minded that they're no earthly use? Not at all. He proceeds to tell us what these things which are above are that we are to seek. We are to lay off the things of fornication and of murder and of adultery and of theft we are to put aside the breaking of the Ten Commandments, says Paul, and we are to be clothed with the new man and the heavenly virtues, the things that are above which are husbands, love your wives, wives, obey your husbands, employees, 
work hard and to do a good job. In other words, the things that are above that you and I need to be about are the concrete things of this earth in which the Creator God, the Logos Christ, has placed us, but we are to do it from a heavenly perspective to His honor and to His glory. Oh, how the church has been plagiarized and torn apart by a Greek pagan agnostic dichotomy between heaven and earth, a disembodiment of the earthly tasks which God would have us do, which earthly tasks we are to do to the glory of our Savior, which are the things that are above where Jesus is. Well, you see, we are getting back to Peter, a royal priesthood and a holy nation, so that we should show forth the praises of him who has called us out of darkness to his marvelous light. And those praises are to be shown forth not only in singing in church, but our whole lives, in everything that we do, in our family, uh, at the office and wherever, are part of the praises we are to bring to him. And then there's Second Peter chapter 3, where he tells us not to be ignorant of this one thing, that whereas the day of the Lord is coming, is at hand, that one day with the Lord is like a thousand years. God takes his time in great patience to come back to this earth to wind things up. And we should not think that God has forgotten the promise of the coming back of the Lord at the end of the history, but why has he not come yet? Well, because God is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Now, you know, as a Calvinist, I believe the us-wood that Peter is referring to there is those who are elect and chosen and sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, described at the beginning of the first epistle. And yet, I think we cannot altogether dodge the force of what the Arminian is telling us, that God has a desire that humanity be saved. And I think from this perspective of the eschatology of victory, we are able to reconcile these two elements. And we are indeed to see that, that God does indeed love the world so much that he does not will the destruction of the world and of its peoples as an organic whole, but rather that the world may repent and serve him and to be saved so that we are not to expect a speedy return of Christ after which there will be no possibility of repentance, but we are rather to think in terms of a thousand years at least that could elapse before his return, during which time repentance is to be preached and submission to the will of God with the expectation that all should embrace this. Well, one could go on at greater length. One could point out how Paul, after describing the duties of the civil magistrate in Romans chapter 13 that I plan to deal with in some depth when we get into Dutch and South African Calvinism a little later, uh, having told us that the state is to reward those who are good and to punish those who are evil, then proceeds to remind us of what is good and what is evil. When he tells us that we are not to owe anyone anything except to love one another, and that love is the fulfilling of the law, and then he details certain of the moral laws of God, showing us that the state, and for that matter, every other human institution, is obligated 
in terms of the New Testament to inculcate and to encourage the practice of this piety of God in terms of his moral law. And then there is the great 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 1 Corinthians where Paul tells us that in Christ all shall be made alive that finally the end will come and the end will come when Christ shall have delivered up the kingdom to God when Christ shall have put down all rule and authority and power for Christ must reign reign now until he hath put all enemies under his feet what is Jesus doing now why he is trampling down his enemies under his feet what are Jesus' feet the church of Jesus Christ here on earth his body under the control of him the heavenly head our commander in chief through his Holy Spirit giving us his directions through his infallible word and we march forth unto victory trampling down his enemies and all of this to be achieved you see before the end he finally comes at the end when all things shall have been subdued unto him says Paul then shall the son also himself be subject unto him who put all things under him so that God may become all things in all people and after God has become all things in all people then the second Adam the son of man subjects his messianic reign to the control of the ontological trinity the Father, Son and Holy Spirit and then the baptism of God's people reaches its fullest consummation in eschatological perspective Oh, that we should see the beauty of this. Therefore, punchline, because these things are so, be full of courage, be full of confidence, my beloved brethren. Be steadfast, be unmovable, be always abounding in the work of the Lord, because you should know that your labor for the Lord is not in vain. And then in Ephesians, the first chapter, I have to go faster now, we find an emphasis of the truly cosmic scope of the work of this second Adam, Jesus Christ. He is right now engaged in gathering together into one everything in Christ, the things which are here on earth, as well as the things that are in heaven. And while this process is underway, all principalities and powers are being involved in being subjected uh, to him not only those in this world but those in the world to come the father has put all things under his feet and has given him to be the head over all things to the church which is his body the fullness of God who is filling all things in all people and then we find in Ephesians chapter 4 a reminder that one reason why we should keep the uh, fifth commandment honor thy father and thy mother is so that thy days may be long in the land that the Lord hath given thee no longer the land of Canaan merely but the land of the Gentiles in, Ephes in Ephesus to whom he is writing and so here we see something of the general equity of the Old Testament commandments being exported 
and applied in a different cultural environment in the New Testament perspective. The Apostle Paul also reminds us of the centrality of Christ and his cosmic significance in Colossians chapter 1, so that in all things he might have the preeminence. Through Christ God is to reconcile all things unto himself, all things even which are here on earth. John's Gospel, our Savior, is called the light of men, who lights every man that comes into the world, who cannot be comprehended, who cannot be extinguished, but who shines brighter and brighter to as many as receive him. We're told in 1 John, greater is the Spirit of Christ who is in us than the spirits of the Antichrist in the world, for the Father sent the Son to be Savior to the world, and this is the victory that overcomes the world, namely our faith. Last in the book of Revelation, how I wish we had longer time to go into this. He goes forth conquering now and to conquer on his white horse. And we follow in his train. And he finally overcomes the ten kings. In Revelation 17, he overcomes them, but so too do those who follow with the Lord Jesus Christ. And they overcome by keeping the commandments of God and the word of his testimony, Revelation 12 and Revelation 14. Until finally on the last page of Scripture, we have that glorious and gorgeous description of the church of Jesus Christ, militant, where it's operating properly, and a preview too, I believe, of the church triumphant. As the cultural mandate has finally been fulfilled and the whole earth has been subjugated to his glory. As the Great Commission is an integral part thereof has been enforced worldwide. And as the very kings bring the honor and the glory of the nations into the heavenly city where Jesus shall reign as they wear his name in consummated baptism on their foreheads and as they serve him as his slaves forever and forever. Come the day. Yea, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Thank you. For free newsletters and a complimentary copy of our large discount mail-order Christian book catalog specializing in Reformed resources, contact Stillwater's Revival Books. On the Internet, we are at www.swrb. Dot com. By email, swrb at swrb.com. Our mailing address is 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, uh, Alberta, can be abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. By phone, we're at 403 403- Four five zero thirty seven thirty, or after February ninety nine, we will be at a seven eight zero four five zero thirty seven thirty. And keep in mind that the causes of fasting, June thirteenth, nineteen twenty one, as listed in the outline of the recent proceedings of the Reformed Presbytery on pages seven and eight, state: one of the sad and evil signs of this day of darkness is the lack of family worship. Those that know God will call upon him. 
Where family worship is not observed, such families are living in a state of heathenism.